0: Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. I'm Shrekhanna, a host for today's show. In the 21st century, space and its applications like satellite comms, earth observation, global navigation systems, etc., they have become synonymous with everyday life. With this occurrence, an extremely opaque, what has been emerged as a gray zone with no rules of engagement no rules of the road. With this occurrence, an extremely opaque gray zone has emerged with no rules of the road and Earth's orbit becoming overcrowded. Narrowly avoiding collision on in space and questionable close passes, they have become a real possibility. And proximity operations between artificial space objects of geopolitical rivals have made space a contestable domain. And like any other contestable domain, such as land, air, sea, or even cyberspace, space also needs strategic thinking and broad directions formulated for securing national interest by different countries. To discuss the main contours of the latest strategic publications on space by China, NATO, and what should a similar publication or similar or strategy by India should look like, I have with me my colleague, Aditya Parikh, who apart from being a Russia guy, is also one of our space policy wonks. Welcome, Aditya.
1: Hey, Shrey. It's great to be on the show.
0: So, Aditya, can you tell us some highlights about that recent NATO's space strategy that has come out and what are your impressions
1: of it? Big glad to Shrey. So, the NATO strategy, well, I think it's a, in the classic sense a alliances strategy rather than a nation's or any leaders in the nation's strategy. So it reflects a lot of things that we associate with NATO in other domains. So, for example, it has this assertion that NATO is not looking to become an autonomous space actor, uh, meaning that it would be heavily reliant on the national space programs of its constituent members. Now, this is very much how things work on the terrestrial domain for NATO, across theatres, across uh, personnel, across the equipment that NATO countries send to the alliance for deployment of these assets and these personnel. And uh, they collectively serve under NATO, but are you know ultimately from uh, the constituent members. And NATO doesn't really have a fixed permanent structure that uh, these troops are permanently NATO, these vehicles are permanently NATO, it's always a coalition of the willing. Mm -hmm. So that is the most uh, important kind of a thing in this strategy. So I have a few other points. For example, as I just said, there's voluntary nature of uh, these capabilities supply to the NATO alliance. That's paramount in how NATO sees its space assets. as. So for example, the uh, capabilities, the assets that would be provided would be Ah, uh, governed by the granting state's national laws, regulations, and policies, rather than any some sort of a charter that's uh, with NATO. Rather, it would be the same outer space treaty applicable to nation states, the, and the national laws of uh, that granting state would be the guiding principles for those assets. So, for example, Germany provides constellation of satellites. It's going to be governed by the Outer Space Treaty, nineteen sixty seven. Uh, the Liability Convention, and uh, there's going to be the National Laws of Germany. And the third point that I'd like to make is uh, there's a lot of stuff about international outreach and becoming a platform for political military consultations. So this is very related to the Alliance's mandate on relevant deterrence and uh, defense-related space developments. So the goal behind it, as I see it, is the facilitation of information sharing between the Alliance's uh, alliances own members and uh, boosting their space situational awareness or situational awareness terrestrially through the use of space assets. So that's uh, pretty much a reference to space-to-Earth observation capabilities. And I think uh, the idea here is that they want to build a structure where uh, Figuring uh, space situational awareness and ISR data, intelligence search and reconnaissance data that's coming from space, they can figure into the bigger strategic picture and uh, that bolsters the alliance's decision-making, readiness and posture management. So this is pretty much in reference to how uh, troop build-ups might be happening in the European theater, which is currently very relevant. So that sort of a thing would be figured into. So that's part of their strategy. There's also a point about NATO's concerns about uh, space as a, you know, coming to the domain's point, space as being relevant across the spectrum of conflict, and it's they're avoiding hyper fixation on space. So I think that's a very wider strategic picture kind of a context that they've uh, set in this strategy. Yeah, so they've also talked about international cooperation in the sense, I think, uh, so currently, the United Nations General Assembly is engaged in a open-ended working group. So they've set up an OEWG, which is currently engaged in figuring out the rules of the road for responsible behavior in outer space. So as you mentioned in the beginning of this episode, that close passes and rendezvous and proximity operations are something that's creating a gray zone and the orbits are overcrowded. So I think this strategy also addresses how uh, their engagement with the wider international community would be facilitating that. So there are two interpretations to that, to engaging with international fora thing. And I think the final point that uh, caught my eye is is, uh, that they're talking about uh, building a common understanding of concepts related to role of space in crisis or conflict. So we often get this uh, complaint across the Indian strategic community that, not everybody means the same thing when they say the same thing. So doctrines and strategies don't really mean the same to every actor in every situation. And people sometimes use them synonymously, and which is very problematic because they mean two very completely different things. So in that sense, uh, there are you know many concepts uh, like uh, there's resilience. So, for example, uh, this NATO strategy also talks about ways to improve space resilience. So, I interpret it as something uh, akin to just basically putting up assets which can act as redundancies rather than, you know, something fancy. So, if one constellation of satellites gets knocked down, there's another to fall back on. So, yeah, I think that's majorly what the NATO strategy is about.
0: So, Aditya, when we think of a NATO strategy, it's more likely because not all The NATO members have their their space capabilities, mostly U.S., U.K. and France, who will be instrumental in shaping this course. So, And talking about U.S. particularly, I also want to focus on about China. What is your impression of China's latest space white paper which came out? And can you give us some rundown
1: of its highlights? Yeah, absolutely. So China is the most important actor when you look at a power that has, you know, just literally leapfrogged when it was not really much of an actor in the original space race during the Cold War. So China's rise is definitely reflected in this five-year white paper publication on space that they've put out. However, one major thing that I'd like to say is that They've not put too much stuff about to the military space program of their country. And it's primarily, as I see it, a very civilian focused and peaceful use of space kind of a focused publication. It, You know, I read the HTML version of it. So it was running around 25 pages or so. And there's a lot of detail. But, you know, there's only two aspects to it. One is uh, pretty much uh, announcing to the world that uh, this is what we've achieved since 2016. Uh, So they see 2016 as a very watershed kind of a year for their uh, civilian space program, because a lot of constellations on which uh, they're pretty proud of and, you know, the assets that uh, they are uh, boasting about in this paper uh, pretty much, you, you know, came to the fore around that time. And they were, you know, things were just falling in place. And they had a very strategic vision of where they were taking their space program. for. That's why 2016. So there are a bunch of references about to uh, successful things like the Baidu navigation system, which is now rivaling GLONASS and GPS. So they have the capability to look at just about anything on the Earth's surface. And uh, there's a bunch of stuff. For, so if I were to you know dissect the paper in the structure that's been presented, so there's a preamble, as we know, the Chinese Communist Party likes to gloat. And... Gave the leadership a lot of stuff. So yeah, indeed, there's a Xi Jinping quote at the very beginning. So the first two thing that struck me was uh, that this is a strategic communication they've uh, laid out clearly that this is meant not just to inform, but uh, rather to set expectations and that sort of a thing. They talk about to uh, there's a section called a new journey towards a stronger space presence. So. Uh, in this what struck me with the mission section was that they talking about things that would to put the world first and not chinese interests which is a uh, very fundamentally different from how china operates in other uh, spheres so i think this is a reflection of uh, their newfound superpower uh, status if i were to you know be so bold and i think uh, there's also that uh, mentality of uh, a rising tide raises all boats so they wanted to alleviate fears i think That is why they've put in uh, this as the mission where Chinese interests are actually coming second to the world's interests and uh, how they've presented their space program going forward. Then they put out the principles in which, as I said, peaceful progress, peaceful use of uh, space and uh, that they serve the overall national strategy of China. So they've very conveniently put out the uh, uh, they've omitted the military capabilities of China's space program, which is really not true
0: behind China's this enunciation of uh, putting peaceful nature of its space program. If we can go back, uh, you know, when China was uh, rising as a power, there was this, you know, uh, China projected peaceful rise, which was taken seriously by many in US and then it became peaceful development. So maybe um, the thing that you said that they just want to, you know, alleviate fears that uh, we are not there to harm anyone till they get such confidence and they can do the great power the typical great power behavior with it
1: yeah indeed so it's like a kind of a blast from the very recent past kind of a thing right Right. and it's very fitting because uh the winter olympics is beginning and uh, that was around the same time 2008 or so the, the beijing olympics so yeah yeah interesting so the for the peaceful purposes yeah. part so they uh conveniently don't talk about the 2007 asad test which Uh, created the most amount of uh, debris possible it was a very reckless test and it's still seen as this uh, yeah direct ascent test that was so they talk about taking effective measures to protect the space environment ensure that the use of space remains peaceful and clean and they've guaranteed that its space activities would benefit humanity so where was that assertion in 2007 when uh, they tested their direct ascent ASAT capability yeah,
0: maybe they are, they are planning to take us all to space and leave us somewhere so that they can get uh <laughs> they can get domination over LSE. So, okay. On that note we uh, folks we'll take a small break. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back folks. We were discussing space strategy. So Aditya, you were
1: somewhere On China's space strategy? Yeah, so I'd like to mention a few more points about uh, what they've put in. So they're uh, thinking of one very novel thing that I hadn't run across in any other space strategy as of now recently. So they're thinking of uh, uh, near-Earth object defense systems. So what this means is basically if an asteroid or uh, any other threat is uh, on the horizon for Earth, they would launch something kinetic at <laughs> it and hope that it would break up and uh, you know not really harm the Earth, saving the world in some sort of a sci-fi scenario kind of a thing. So yeah, that's a real point they've made uh, in this document. And then there's uh, uh, stuff about deep space exploration. Well, lunar exploration, they're thinking of uh, pursuing with chi- uh, with uh, Russia, I'm sorry. So lunar exploration, they're thinking of exploring with Russia in the uh, International Lunar uh, Research Station project, which uh, is supposed to get its uh, legally binding uh, document very soon. So there's ILRS, there's uh, planetary exploration. Uh, So they've thought of uh, putting together missions, which would have multiple stops in the solar system and beyond that sort of a thing. So there's also a focus on uh, asteroid mining, There, uh, there's a point here that says they would launch asteroid probes to sample near-Earth asteroids and probe main belt comets. So, yeah, they're thinking of the commercial aspect of uh, deep space exploration as well. And uh, then there's the telemetry tracking and command uh, sort of a thing. So that's a huge concern to them because, uh, you know, at one point, uh, China was very dependent on these uh, ships that go to uh, sea and uh, act as, you know, ground stations for receiving satellite signals and triangulating them for the accuracy of their baidu system and other navigation systems and satellite systems that they use for isr uh, sort of a role so their idea is to you know make alliances and get actual tracking stations on the ground uh, in various places of the world because you really need four corner coverage and some in between sort of a coverage to Actually be a a GNSS power, global satellite navigation power. So, yeah, I think that about sums it up for uh, this white paper. But right.
0: So, Aditya, and I know um, this can be a little bit of, you know, hypothetical question because we do not, uh, we in India, we do not publish our grant strategy or defense white paper as such but i still want to ask you uh, having studied the space strategies and policy of so many countries what do you think india's equivalent of uh, you know strategic publication on
1: space should be yeah indeed so that's a focus area that i've been looking at for a while and i think india should to in in terms of recently published uh, space strategic publications so this uh, not just this nato strategy and china's white paper There's also the uh, UK strategy. So I think uh, I have narrowed down a list of uh, what uh, India should be putting in that document if hypothetically it ever comes out. Because as of now, we don't know if it's a work in progress or nobody even touched such a project before in our uh, defense and strategic establishment. So I think uh, it should be uh, as the NATO strategy does and the UK strategy does, that they treat space as just one part of the wider strategic context. So, I think uh, India has newly set up uh, Defense Space Agency and Defense Space Research Organization. I've heard, you know, I've read some reporting. Uh, so, there was this article in Times of India, I think, last year, early last year, that was uh, saying that they're maximizing uh, the effectiveness of Indian operations in space, land, sea, and air domains. That's the kind of mandate that uh, they've gotten. So, it's a tri service agency. So, I think if India's strategy, said that, that their plan is to use space as one part of the bigger strategic picture, as the NATO strategy says. So I think, yeah, one of the pillars of our uh, strategic publication should also be that because our elements of the military, which are supposed to handle space, the DSA and DSRO, they are pretty much thinking in this uh, along the same lines. So they're, uh, if I recall correctly, they're looking to uh, get to Systems from vendors in India, which would supply them with capability and technologies that can evaluate threats across domains. So that would uh, include space as well. So, yeah, I think uh, it's more about India uh, thinking in terms of evaluating and analyzing threats rather than taking action solely in one domain, i.e., space. And uh, I think the 2019 mission Shakti. So, I hate to say this, but India was really criticized for the debris that resulted from that direct ascent missile test. And I think uh, it's an opportunity for India if uh, uh, we would name debris mitigation as a priority because, you know, since then, and uh, technologies and vendors and, uh, you know, operational plans have uh, surfaced in other countries' strategic publications that talk about picking off debris from the orbits of the Earth. So, yeah, we can also... Uh, think about robotic arms and whatnot uh, in terms of uh, mitigating space debris. So, as far as I remember, uh, the outgoing ISRO chairman, Dr. K. K7. so the outgoing ISRO chairman, Dr. K. K7, has already confirmed that to, this is a quote from another uh, news report that they're looking at acquiring technologies like self-eating rockets, uh, self-vanishing satellites, and robotic arms to catch space debris, and these are areas of push for ISRO. So uh, as far as I understand it, this self managing satellite is basically nothing but to, uh, you know, it doesn't leave remnants behind. So hence the vanishing part. It would decay, it would fall to orbit, that sort of a thing. And, uh, you know, space debris more or less uh, in the giant chunks part, when it's not created by kinetic hit, is about leftover booster stages of uh, previous space missions which are basically discarded in orbit because the early space race, nobody was uh, thinking that we would even make it uh, to those altitudes. So people never thought about what would happen to this junk that would be left behind. So yeah, that's been the precedent until very recently. And that's why leftover fuel becomes a problem, creates fragments in those leftover booster stages and all sorts of things. So yeah, space debris should be priority for us and its mitigation uh, should be laid out as a key pillar. Okay so uh, there should be a push for greater space situational awareness because transparency is very important because you know uh, ISRO's is current is track vertical as i understand it to it has a very you know opaque kind of a operational procedure kind of a way so they only share data with uh, international organizations that they have uh, agreements with and india's own uh, government functionaries so the telemetry and tracking parts of ISRO uh, which is a track uh, they should really consider taking inputs from uh, other credible sources rather than just uh, NORAD and uh, the UN and these places and their own situational awareness assets. So I think we should also publish uh, data. So Istrack should also publish data, which is non-sensitive, because the idea here is not just to, that people would be able to see our stuff where it is non sensitive ones. I'm not talking about everything military sensitive should be put out uh, in the open. Definitely not. But to uh, stuff which is benign, that data should be put out. And it would help us in this way that not only us are watching the adversary, because as you mentioned, the proximity operations, the close passes, uh, they might be snooping on our assets but we have no proof until we publish the data and when it's publicly available so the eyes of the public eye would also be on china and other adversaries which might to, uh, you know try to snoop on our assets or you know try to damage them so that's why i'm pushing uh, for there to be a space situational awareness more uh, transparently in india So there's also uh, the part about uh, setting out to saying that uh, we should also think about near-earth object defense, as uh, China has uh, said in its uh, white paper. So I think, yeah, we have definitely the uh, direct ascent capability in our ballistic missiles and such. So I think it's not out of the question that we can contemplate a a military security program where we can think of uh, sort of air defense in orbit so, yeah, I think it's it's possible that India can also contribute to a larger effort against uh, things like uh, asteroid in terms of uh, near-Earth object space uh, defense. And uh, uh, the final point that's in my mind is uh, addressing permanent presence and deep space exploration. So very recently, last year, we did a, a discussion document about uh, Russia's nuclear space tug uh, called Zeus TEM. Uh, so... I think uh, India has many such opportunities and India has uh, other opportunities for permanent presence in space for scientific purposes and observation purposes, that sort of a thing. So India should think of space stations as well. And, you know, it's a push area that that ISRO lays out in uh, many media interactions. It has its top brass lays out. But I think it shouldn't just be about to human spaceflight. But rather, it, uh, we should also think of uh, building space stations. And uh, as far as I understand, ISRO is thinking in those terms, but there's not very concrete stuff. They're just saying that to, from these human spaceflight missions, our technology for the space stations would also emerge. So I don't really see uh, it as very concrete. And I think international cooperation would be very important in that area. So there's uh, Russia's own... Unilateral space station that would come up uh, if the ISS goes because it's uh, reaching its end of life. Uh, Its modules are getting very old, it's developing cracks. So, yeah, 2030, 2035 is the time that I think uh, ISS would be retired. Around that time, Russia's own space station would be uh, also ready. So, I think India can take the opportunity with Russia here. And, uh, well, there's going to be an ISS uh, equivalent to. Replacement program as well, I think, because the West is not going to just uh, give up on permanent presence. So yeah, India can uh, sit in many camps, but not in anybody's tent. That sort of a uh, thing that uh, would be the most beneficial for us on these two aspects as yeah, well.
0: Right, and uh, you know, with debris mitigation, it's just that if we focus on debris mitigation, then we can India can also harness our uh, private industry. And on that uh, note, I want to ask you one final question. How do you see India's
1: space industry and the direction that ISRO has taken? So major space sector reforms that uh, came out very recently, I think they are a very good step, but I don't see the kind of exponential growth that to uh, say, for example, the United States has had over the past two, two, three decades. So I remember at one point, uh, NASA didn't really have much of a plan for sending their astronauts to the International Space Station. So the uh, Russian uh, space, uh, state space company chief, uh, Rogozin, Dimitri Rogozin, he said that uh, how is NASA going to uh, send their astronauts to the ISS if we don't provide our uh, Soyuz rockets to them? So uh, he jokingly said that perhaps a trampoline would work. So they would jump on and uh, be shot up into the orbit uh, towards the ISS. So dial that to a few years, few decades, and uh, there is Elon Musk and SpaceX. And uh, yeah, they've been fulfilling that role in addition to Soyuz rockets. So yeah, they had to you know, see, see that to, uh, come true. Out of nothing, SpaceX came and yeah revolutionized the private space sector so that is why the new space uh, sector in india also has uh, chances for growth but i don't see that sort of a uh, you know major boost coming to india i think uh, there are companies like skyroot agnikul pixel which can provide ride sharing services producing launch vehicles uh, with isro's intellectual property Uh, NSIL, the government company that uh, the government of India has set up for basically providing uh, the intellectual property to uh, these private new space uh, entities in India. Uh, So it it would get a contract from a country, say uh, France's space agency or the European space agency wants to launch satellites and it wants to diversify its launch options. So it gives uh, NSIL, so New Space India Limited. So uh, it's pretty much a government PSU so it gives uh, NSIL the contract and uh, NSIL uh, basically gets uh, you know subcontractors and component suppliers, assembly suppliers. So that's a very old paradigm that ISRO also uh, had these suppliers and sub-assembly builders, that sort of a thing. So Godrej Aerospace Limited, Nagar, these companies have been doing that since the late 60s, early 70s. So it's pretty much the same paradigm, but the difference is now... Even uh, startups, companies which were set up with very little capital are also in the same game. And uh, we have industry bodies now like the Indian Space Association, ISPA. So yeah, they're headed to a very good direction. But I don't think that India's private space sector is going to see that bombastic growth that the USS did. So yeah, it's a good direction, but not exactly
0: ideal. There is also, you know, Aditya, money constraint. We are... We are a, you know, developing country. So we have to take this into account. We can't match that. But yeah, there's a lot to be desired. So on that note, folks, we'll call it a wrap. If you liked today's discussion, then do check out all our past and future episodes of All Things Policy. If you liked our show,